Hello, kind folk, and welcome back to Comforting Chaos. If you listened to the past few episodes and gave me some feedback, I just want to give you a shout out and say thank you so much. I really greatly appreciate anyone who, first of all, listens to this podcast at all, but secondly, lets me know what they think about it or what they'd like to hear on the podcast in the future. So if you're listening to this right now and thinking, I'd like to tell Eli what I think, well, this is your invitation to do so. Even if it's not about the podcast, you can just call me up and tell me what you're thinking. And I might have something to say about it, but probably not. Honestly, more likely not. Anyway, on to today's guest. Today's episode idea hit me sort of out of the blue, and it's going to feel really out of the blue compared to the last three episodes. But I was browsing the internet, as as humans do, um, Reddit to be specific, and I saw a post in the Asheville, North Carolina community, and it was a picture of a massive double-decker bus passing through downtown Asheville. And under the photo it said, Look out for this bus. It belongs to the Twelve Tribes cult. If they offer you tea and cookies, do not take it. Whatever you do. And so naturally, I was just drawn in from the get-go. Cult, tea, cookies, double-decker buses. I needed to know more. So I started researching, and I found a lot of information about the Twelve Tribes cult. And it fascinated me and horrified me all at once. But I knew I wanted to learn more about what was going on behind the scenes of this cult. And so I went back to the place where it all began, Reddit. And I looked up 12 Tribes Cult ex-member. And sure enough, I found a thread from five years ago of an ex-member claiming to know more about the tribe than anybody ever should and asking the Reddit community to ask him any questions. Now, five years ago in internet time, that's a long time. So I felt like my hopes of actually getting in touch with this person was pretty low. But I figured, why not? And I sent him a message. And within an hour, I got a message back. He wanted to come on the podcast. And frankly, I was just surprised and excited. So that leads us here today. Sanasta Kalucci has had, to put it lightly, an interesting life. At 21 years old, he left college to go work and live on an organic farm. He wanted to grow his own food, and he wanted to feel secure and taken care of in a community. And he thought by going to work on this farm and live amongst a community of people that his dreams would come true. But in Sanasta's story, you'll find out why some dreams seem a little too good to be true. And how sometimes pursuing a dream can become a nightmare in itself. Now, without me giving away any more of this story, I'm going to let it tell itself. And just to let you know, our conversation was going so well that I'll be splitting this interview into two parts so that you can really get a feel for... Sanasta's experience, and there's a little bit of a cliffhanger in part one, but you know what? It's good to be patient. And last but not least, I just want to extend a trigger warning for content that contains violence, abuse, or any kind of manipulative behaviors. Just want to let you guys know, if this isn't for you, that's okay. And without further ado, I hope you guys enjoy my interview with my guest, Sanasta Kalucci. We all are here together just to learn about ourselves and how we can take care of everybody else. Living on a planet that is circling the drain, we 
do the best we can to not just go insane It's comfort and chaos Good morning, how are you? Morning, doing good, how about you? Doing well, doing well, nice to virtually meet you nice to meet you too where, where are you uh where are you checking in from this morning if you uh right now i'm living in battle creek michigan michigan nice yep is that like um is that on the eastern side of the the mitten or uh battle creek is uh kind of southwestern okay um kind of like the the easternmost part of southwestern Michigan. The easternmost part of southwestern. <laughs> yeah, so there's Battle Creek and Kalamazoo, Grand Rapids. Those are all considered like uh, southwestern Michigan. Okay, I have been to Grand Rapids and I've been to Holland, Michigan. Oh, okay, yeah, is Holland's a, a nice uh, coastal town. Yeah, nice tourist, that's gorgeous. Touristy place, yeah. I, I couldn't believe it because I grew up on the east coast. Right. And, uh, you know, the Atlantic Ocean and whatnot. And I was like, oh, you know, I've never been to a lake or a great lake. That looks like an ocean. Yeah. I was <laughs> yeah. like, what? This is this is the yeah, ocean. It's beautiful. Yeah. It was, it was... So did you grow up in Michigan? Uh, I was born in Michigan and my whole family's uh, from here. But my mom actually raised uh, my sister and I in California. Oh. So I grew up in Northern California. Okay. I got gotcha. you. North of Reading. Nice. Well, that's I've heard that's a nice area as well. It's, the redwoods and all that. Yeah, beautiful scenery. Mm. Lovely. Well, okay, so for all the listeners here, just to catch everyone up, we're here with Sanasta Kalucci. Going to talk about your experience, well, just some of your life experiences and some pretty interesting life experiences, to say the least. Right. Most importantly, your story about your experience in the 12 tribes community. Um, and for those who have never heard of the 12 tribes, maybe let's just start there. And in your own words, in your own understanding, kind of give us a uh, elevator pitch, a synopsis of what the 12 tribes community is. Who is it? What do they believe? Okay, well, they're a uh, Bible-based fundamentalist community. Um they were founded in the early 70s by Gene and Marcia Spriggs. Gene Spriggs passed away recently. Um, Marcia, as far as I know, is still alive. And they sort of spun off of the whole like Jesus freak movement that was going on in the 70s. And there was a whole uh, sort of movement to get back to get back to the garden, get back to nature, you know. Uh, so it was like a, a combination of like this hippie commune mixed with religious aspects. Uh, but they initially, they just had like homes in the south in Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, that were just a welcoming place for anyone to come in. And a lot of young people that were you know, at, at a crossroads in their lives, or maybe they ran away or whatever, they would, they would come into these homes and be welcomed and they would all go to church together. Hmm. And they were, I believe, Pentecostals. Mm -hmm. And then at a certain point, they sort of broke away from the church because they disagreed with uh, a lot of the church's doctrines there. And that's where, when they started to be sort of characterized as a, a sect or a cult mm. is when they, they broke away from the uh, mainstream uh, Christianity. Right. And so they began to sort of craft their own Exactly. Story. Yeah. Create their own traditions and such. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then they um, sort of gradually more and more develop, developed like a Hebrew roots type of thing where you know, they started giving each other Hebrew names. Mm. They didn't start out that way. They started out as just, you know, a bunch of Christians living together. Right. And so what is the significance um, 
you know, uh, the 12 tribes name is obviously derived from uh, Israel. Yeah, from the 12 tribes of Israel. Right. They, they believe that they are the new Israel. Okay. And so, like you said, then that's when the uh, giving up of your given name at birth, that started to happen. And so that probably started with the founders, right? So Gene and Marsha took on new names, which was? Uh, Yonake and Hyamek. Right. And so, you know, in some publications and some podcasts I've listened to about the tribes, that's kind of who they, um, you know, that's what they are called within the community. Right. And then so anyone after that began who joined the tribe, then the community, so to speak, um, they had to give up their names, correct? Yes. Yep. Take on a new new identity. That's right. And so, like you said, they kind of began to break away from fundamental Christian beliefs. Um, can you give us some examples of, of how the beliefs in community differ from traditional Christian beliefs? Yeah, there's a very strong emphasis on the need to live communally uh, in order to fulfill uh, sort of, I guess, God's word, mm -hmm. his, his commands. They point to the book of Acts as being sort of, I guess, mandatory for believers that anyone who believes is uh, together and shares all things in common. It says all who believe. Mm -hmm. So if you're not part of the all who believe and are together sharing all things in common, then you're not a true believer is how they would see it. Um, so you, you actually have to live in a community and you actually have to give up all your possessions. Um, it also says in Acts 4, 32 through 35, um, that they, uh, gave up all their possessions. If they had lands, they sold it property, you know, they sold all their property and uh, they laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet and then it was distributed to all as any had need. So essentially it was uh, an early example of communism. And yeah, it's very familiar, very similar to that. And so it's, it, and it's also very, I guess you could say literalist of, of their, in their interpretations of the Bible were, right. are very yeah. literal in sense of this is what, this story in the Bible is saying he laid this down, he, you know, so therefore you should too, instead of, you know, maybe some Christian, uh, sects take a more metaphorical approach to the Bible, I'd say. Right. And in, in that example, they would probably upon hearing that say, well, you know, that was for back then, mm -hmm. but times have changed. So right. we don't have to do that anymore. Right. Whereas the community, believes otherwise that you absolutely have to. Right. They'd say, well, you know, God doesn't change. So the commands are still the same. And yeah. And it's very, um, it's very all or nothing, very black or black and white. You're either all the way in, um, fully submitted, um, surrendered to their interpretations or you're, you're damned, right? Right. Well, they would they would argue the other way around, though. They would say that with Christians, it's either, um, you know, either eternal life or eternal damnation. There's nothing in between. But what the 12 tribes teaches is actually they, that there's three eternal destinies, that, the, that you can live outside the community as a non-believer and still live a righteous life. You know, if you live according to natural law, um, that you can live a righteous life. So they they look at salvation differently. You know, for uh, the typical Christian to be saved means to accept Jesus into your heart and go to heaven. Mm -hmm. For the 12 tribes to be saved means to be saved from eternal damnation. So you can do that either through um, being righteous or by being one of the holy. So there's two different classifications. They see themselves as the holy 
and they see those living a decent life outside the community who have not heard the gospel, that's an um, important distinction they make. If you had not heard the gospel, did not reject it, then you can live a righteous life. Interesting. Yeah. So for me, they would say that, you know, I'm going to hell for sure because, because you've I heard the gospel, it. I rejected it. I don't live with them anymore. And so even though, you know, all I do is <laughs> get up early, go to work every day, you know, sure. take care of my son and, you know, I'm just doing the best I can. Mm. They would say I'm, I'm going to burn in hell for eternity for not living in the community. Yeah. So I know it's this is all confusing, but like no, they no. do make they do make uh, like three different separate categories, three distinctions there. No, that's very interesting to put it that way. In that they make concessions or, or forgiveness for the ignorance of people. I guess is what they're saying is if you right. if you somehow don't know about the Bible or the gospel, then you're okay as long as you live in their eyes a decent life, whatever that may mean. Which for for them. The example they like to use is the hardworking farmer in rural China who mm. never had the gospel preached to him. All he's doing is taking care of his family every day. Like, what about him? Does he deserve eternal damnation? Mm -hmm. So they would say that he would be in the category of the righteous, which, by the way, the, the righteous, their, I guess their lot in life, excuse the, the pun, because lot is seen as like the, example of a, a righteous man not he wasn't holy he wasn't filthy and unjust he was righteous in right. god's eyes so abraham was holy lot was righteous and then there's lots of examples of filthy and unjust but anyway their lot in life the the righteous is to serve the holy mm. and obey them so like the 12 tribes they see themselves as they're going to be kings in the next age and in the eternal age and they're going to rule over entire planets and the planets are going to be filled with these righteous people I that see. are just like completely submissive and do whatever the the holy tell them to do. So there's a hierarchy even yeah, to their next their next exactly. eternal life. Oh wow. Yeah, it's all about hierarchy and authority. Wow. Yeah. And so there's some pretty some pretty hefty um visceral imagery in terms of their portrayal of and the way they talk about um eternal life and, and especially eternal damnation right there's some terms used like the lake of fire and oh yeah it's yeah it's horrible weeping and gnashing of teeth and yep death and destruction and then at the end of this current age that we're living in they describe how the battle of armageddon is going to be and that they're gonna um you know, wipe out their enemies. They believe that that's going to be a physical battle with blood going up to the knees of the horses that they're riding on mm. and uh, that they're going to dine at the master's table on the flesh of their enemies. It's just, mm. yeah, just horrible imagery there. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and that imagery is used in a very, and we can get to that part, um, you know, about how it's, it's used to maybe keep people docile or or keep them from obedient right reverting or uh, revolting too much against the tribe because you know if you're given this imagery and you're really believing it then it's really hard to make a stand against it because i mean who wants to be if you really believe that that's going to happen who who would want that fate i know i wouldn't right so before we get to all that and thank you so much for giving a a bit of a synopsis to how their beliefs got crafted and sort of spun away from traditional Christianity. Well, how does the, how does the story of Jesus fit into their model? Is that, is it part of it? Is it? It's yeah, it's everything. I mean, they, they see him as, you know, their, their King, their Messiah, and they see themselves as the bride of Messiah. And a lot of that comes from the book of revelation. A lot of, um, you know, poetic sort of, I guess there, uh, there's a lot of analogies. They see themselves as as the bride that uh, you know in, in the book of Revelation she she's escaping the beast, the dragon, and she flees to the wilderness where she's protected by God, mm. and then you know 
Jesus comes back, he's the skies are split and he comes back riding a, a horse and he this is you know, like the rapture, the right those who believe leap up to to be with him in the sky and then that's when the battle happens and on and on and so forth. I see. So it's a yeah, it's a very um they paint a very romantic portrait of themselves as the the innocent, the like you said, the righteous, right? You know, it's they're set apart from others who Yeah, they see themselves as the holy and and those who live a good life outside of the community are the righteous. Um, they get that from Revelation as well. Mm-hmm. It it says the um, refers to the filthy and unjust, uh, who of course will burn in hell, and then it refers to the the righteous, and it refers to the holy. So it makes like three different categories there, according mm-hmm. to their interpretation. Right. Like that's Revelation twenty two eleven, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, and so a lot, of, yeah, a lot of it's coming from that. Um, rapture revelation story yeah uh, and I, I have to assume there is that the 12 tribes has its own documentation and, and books so to speak on on these stories coming from you know gene or yonic himself right oh down yeah to the, just the elders huge collection of thousands of, they call them teachings mm-hmm. huge collection of them wow they save every one of them um Everything he said, they took it as, you know, God's word. This was God's prophet speaking to them. And they, so they wrote down, you know, literally everything he said. And they distributed that to all the different communities all around the world. Uh, There were teachings multiple times per week Mm. that we would hear. So it was really like ingrained in us. Yeah. So that's where we're... That's where I want to kind of intersect um, where the community intersected with your life. And I read a bit of your book, which is just a fantastic story of your own. Um, and you were, you were very young when you got involved with the community. 21, was it? Yeah, I had just turned 21 when I joined. So at that age, I mean, gosh, I... I I shudder to even think about what I was doing at that age. Um, (laughs) But what were you doing in life just before you ran into the community? What what did your life look like? Well, I had attempted college for a year and a little bit more than a year. So it was like a semester. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, a year and a, a semester or whatever. When you whatever. say attempted, uh, was it not not going as planned? My grades were fine. Uh, you know, it wasn't about the studying or, you know, the work. It was more just the living situation. Mm-hmm. I didn't have, um, you know, full financial aid. Sure. And I couldn't afford to live in the dorms. Ended up getting a job at a fast food restaurant and got a small um, studio apartment Midtown Detroit. Okay. And uh, I had a lot of health problems. I've got sickle cell anemia. Mm. And that was sort of disruptive to my work. And essentially, I just, you know, was financially um, insecure. Yeah. uh, Unstable. So you're 21 years old. You're new to a new environment. Um, in Col- yeah, I grew up know. in California. All of a sudden, here I am in Detroit. Yeah, that you know, that, like, that would be a jarring thing for anyone who grew up on on the coast. I'm sure you know. For me, yeah. absolutely. Um, and and you're in a financially vulnerable place, which probably puts you in a bit of a mentally vulnerable place, um, especially at at such a young age. And so, I can only imagine it. You know, was a ripe opportunity for something that feels assuring to come into your life. Right. So, yeah, that's, it's kind of like there's the physical aspect and then there's the mental, um, physically, obviously I was like very desperate. Sure. And then mentally I was just like ready to be, um, (laughs) 
I don't know. It was like ripe for the picking for the cult because uh, my I had just met my dad too for the first time, oh. and he was very religious, and he was the one that basically planted the idea in my head of this, um, you know, community. He he used to talk a lot about the end times. He had never heard of the twelve tribes. He grew up uh, Jehovah's Witness, and he sort of broke away from that and just started his own like sort of beliefs. And interestingly enough, he he thought that he was going to be a king in the next age. Mm. Um, he he still to this day he believes that he's going to be the king of Benjamin, that like an entire tribe of Israel. Wow! It's it, yeah. It astonishes me that there's all these people that think they're going to be like the king of an entire tribe or planet or whatever. Yeah, it, it is very interesting. And they can't all be the king, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, almost so some, almost some this... Game of Thrones type. Uh... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he put this idea in my head. He said that a safe place to be, you know, when when the end times come, would be in a community where they're growing their own food. Mm-hmm. And that appealed to me for a number of reasons. One is I experienced firsthand what it's like to to be starving. Uh, not only am I anemic, but I had to go many days without food uh, and ended up sick and in the hospital at one point. And during those times, I was just thinking constantly about farming. You know, like yeah. when you when you lack food, you that's all you can think about. Mm. I thought about like being self-sufficient and growing my own food. And mm-hmm. I just really wanted to do that. But here I was in Detroit. And I thought to myself, how am I going to do that? And then here's my dad. He comes along and says that, you know, a great place to be would be a community where they grow their own food. And I was like, oh, yeah, of course, a community. Like, I can't, yeah, I can't buy land, but I can join yeah. this group of people that already has it. Right. It it hit you at the right place at the right time to right. find yeah. something to fill that. And so how how did you go about finding it? Or did they find you? I found a website. Um, it was probably a few different websites, actually. One was um, Willing Workers on Organic Farms, and another one was a list of what they call intentional communities. And the Twelve Tribes is listed on both of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure if um, they they might have been removed since then. I know since writing my book, I um, got them listed on the. Uh, Southern Poverty Law Center's uh, list of hate groups, so they they might have been removed. Wow! But uh, that's how I found them initially, and I emailed them, and they recommended uh, there were two different farms. There was Bellows Farm in New York, and then there was uh, Stepping Stone Farm in uh, Missouri. Okay. So they recommended that I go to the farm in Missouri because they said that that was my my tribe they they basically like they organize the tribes based on the region that you're from okay so if you're from the midwest then your tribe would be the tribe of manasseh so they recommended that that i go to missouri so they put me in touch with some of the leaders there and uh they just you know invited me to come visit what was that what was that first visit like could you like paint a bit of a picture and maybe what you were what you were thinking and feeling as you first encountered the community yeah i was really nervous i ended up at the springfield missouri greyhound bus station and a guy showed up his name was david and he had like a big bushy beard and creepy smile and uh he just seemed way too happy to meet me and uh he offered me some of their uh their tea yerba mate Mm -hmm. and a lot of a lot of times they'll make it chilled and mix it with uh different kinds of fruit juice so it was like a mason jar with this like chilled fruity tea drink Mm -hmm. that he brought to the bus station with him and he had like this old beat up van (laughs) and he gave me a ride back to the farm, and it was like an hour drive, middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. 
and he during the drive he starts talking about the male child and the 144,000 and the uh, all these things symbolism that I didn't understand what he was saying and at a certain point he said with his big creepy smile he was like we've made a covenant and he like lifted his eyebrows and and he like literally paused at that point he's like we've made a covenant to die to ourselves oh my gosh and he like lifted his eyebrows as he's saying that i had no idea what he was talking about like i wasn't growing up i i wasn't raised religious like right. I, growing up i didn't think that much about religion or god or any of that right i didn't understand the um you know, the symbolism there, or like... <laughs> so up until that point, you had quite literally thought you were just going to a, a, a self-sufficient farming community that focused on on growing food. Right. And you didn't grow up religious, like you said, so this was kind of, other than meeting your dad and kind of experiencing his um, religious... Uh, I don't want to be rude and say delusions, but religious beliefs, maybe. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I would agree with you on that. I would call them delusions. And so <laughs> then you're kind of, then you're in this van with a new person. You're thinking <laughs> yeah. you're going to go to this. Stranger danger. <laughs> sure. I mean, were, were alarm bells already ringing at that point for you? Or Oh, yeah, I was nervous as hell, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then another thing I was worried about is he, he was like, when I told him where I was going, it's like 12 tribes. It's like, aren't they aren't they racist? And uh, what's crazy is, like, they kind of are. Mm. But he it wasn't even the 12 tribes he was thinking of. There's a different 12 tribes. There's a black 12 tribes. And it's just, like, it's blacks only. And they, like, I'm mixed. So I don't even know if I would be accepted. But, um, right. like, there's a, there's a, like, really actual like vehemently openly racist 12 tribes that are the black 12 tribes so i think that's who he was thinking about interesting but anyway i was worried on the other side of things i was worried that they were like more like the kkk or whatever like mm -hmm. that kind of racist and then i get there and the first thing i see is a, a black man and he's out there in his mud boots cleaning out the, the chicken coop and it's like oh okay i guess if you know there's a black guy here then I yeah. guess it's all right. I'll be fine. So that kind of was, it disarmed you for, for the I moment. I think that was the first, first thing that like, I started to let my guard down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then tell me, you know, what was that? What was the farm like, you know, your first walk around the property and. Yeah. So they, the, first thing first was everybody came out to meet me it was just it was a small community but for me it's a lot of people there was like 12 people there which is really small for a 12 tribes community but yeah um yeah they all came out to greet me they all seemed like genuinely happy to see me gave me hugs and stuff it was weird it's like you're you know you're meeting your family mm. and then um they showed me where i was going to be sleeping uh, was a room with bunk beds in it, so it was like where all the single men mm -hmm. slept. But there was a basket on my bed, and it had a card in it, and um, it was like a fruit basket. It had like an energy bar and like different kind of treats in there. They call it a welcome basket, and it was just all really nice. It was hospitable. They fed me lunch, um, more tea, and then. Uh, they put me to work right away, which that really impressed me too. You know, that's why I was there is I wanted to feel useful and, uh -huh. and work hard and, and have my needs met. Yeah. So it was like that part of it was fulfilled instantly, like the first day that I got there. I see. So what, um, what job did they put you to from the, the get go? Well, they, um, showed me the goats and, um, I think, probably just bringing hay to the goats and cleaning out the barn. And then, um, on, on the, on a daily basis from then on, I was working in the garden with a man named Ben Shimon and they assigned him as my shepherd, which is, you know, like a spiritual leader. Mm -hmm. And it was his job to, um, preach the gospel to me as you work. 
yeah, as we work together. Wow. So you're there. You you obviously went to Missouri with whatever you had, you know, your, your only possess or did you have any possessions? Could you even bring anything with you? Yeah, I had, I had the clothes on my back. I had, you know, toiletries, basics, and, uh, I think I had like $200 in my pocket. And I thought, you know, if, if these people, I don't know, I had like a sort of a test for them. Like if they do this, then, you know, I'll just give up everything to them. Then you, you know, won't, like then you I won't had need certain it, tests. Right? Yeah. So I'm like, yeah, I want to, I want to give this to them, mm. but I want to make sure. I see. And so you're there. What is, you know, the first, I guess, gathering of the, of the community and the meeting to uh, welcome or initiate you? What is that process like? When you said gathering, my mind went to like, they have gatherings twice a day. Threw me off. Are they actually called gatherings? Yeah, they're called, well, in Hebrew, they would call it a a mincha, Uh which is like a sacrifice, I guess. Um, but that's their, their gathering twice a day. But you're, you're asking about the gathering to meet me, like the, when they all went out to, I guess I'm asking, you know, obviously they put you to work, but I'm sure there was like some sort of, uh, tribe meeting to talk about you as a person and, um, give you a new name, I would assume and that kind of thing. Like what is the, the, the not, not at that point. No. At that point, the only job was to um, to make sure that I heard and understood the gospel. Uh-huh. And then it's not until after baptism that you get a new name. And it's even even then, it's not like everybody gets a name as soon as they're baptized. Sometimes it takes a while for it to like come to them. Like, oh yeah, that's that's their name for sure. Right. Okay, so it takes a, a bit of time to prove prove your worthiness is that kind of what it is or yeah um there's it's kind of like an interview process where you know even if someone a guest says they want to be baptized uh the whole community at that point has to determine whether they're ready or not Mm. and so they'll ask them questions so it's i guess it's a literal interview right there in the gathering yeah and anybody can speak up in in the gatherings so anyone can like ask a question and, and, you know, to make sure that this person is sincere. Mm-hmm. Which I can imagine maybe puts you as you start to get affiliated with a community like this and you start to be there every day, work there every day, get to know the people, you kind of want to prove yourself, I would imagine, or you kind of want to be accepted. Yeah, Absolutely. And so maybe that's a bit of a tactic in a way of like, given you have to reach this certain point of trustworthiness. And so you're going to do that for them. Whereas from what I understand and the the, the very (laughs) um, rudimentary understanding I have of this cult is that they're pretty desperate to keep people around. Yeah. Like they, they want you there. They want you working. They want you submissive to their orders so it seems like it's almost from the outside it's a given you're going to be baptized at some point if you stick around right and don't be too uh too much of a thorn in their side so to speak exactly Um, so how long did it take you to get to that that point of, of baptism uh for me it was three weeks three weeks that's not very long yeah (laughs) so you must have been pretty um obedient so to speak yeah, I would say I was. I don't know if they would see it that way. I think the um, there's a lot of comments about my uh, Detroitness. Detroitness. Yeah, they, they, they said I had a Detroit accent and that I came across as disrespectful sometimes, but it was probably my Detroitness. That sounds um, yeah, a bit racist. Yeah, I know racist. what it sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Interesting. And so the baptism and, and all of that, like at at that point, so three weeks in, you're fresh to, um, religious beliefs as a human, (laughs) you never had really taken on beliefs. That was a quick, that was a quick adoption on your part. Um, like 
how fast did you start to, in your own self, believe the teachings? I guess I was just like really eager to believe it. Mm. Um, you know, I, I wanted to believe it, therefore I did. And the thought that came to me, and you have to understand that, you know, in my mind, I saw two worlds. I saw this like brutal capitalistic world that mm. had let me down and was basically allowing me to starve to death and nobody cared. Yeah. And then I saw this community of believers that all lived together and they all seemed like they were in perfect unity and agreement and everyone had their needs met. Right. And so it's kind of like going from having an empty stomach to a full stomach and, and literally being cold and wet. There were times when I was, you know, after I um, no longer had an apartment, there were times when I was literally homeless and, mm. and, outside cold and wet and so i had that you know physical you know you could feel it you go yeah. from being cold and wet to warm and dry you go from having an empty stomach to a full stomach right. and you're just ripe for indoctrination at that point and so yeah. with me i the question i asked myself was i wonder if the whole world lived like this you know what what would it be like and then i thought i want to find out Mm. And so that's when I like determined that I was going to do everything I could to make it happen. Like I want, I want to find out what it would be like if the whole world lived like this. So mm. I'm going to do my part to make it happen. And that was the, like the determining thoughts that, that caused me to want to be baptized. I see. So it was a noble pursuit within your own heart, I guess, of you, right. you had this thing fulfilled and you thought, well, how many, other people could feel this in this cold, hard, capitalistic world. Right. Yeah. I wanted everyone to be taken care of. I knew there were people all over the world starving to death and, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't work themselves out of that situation, even if they tried, you know, right. it's like, how do you do that when you're in the middle of a, I don't know, a desert somewhere or something like, how do you get out? Sure. Or, or just <laughs> a city, you know, and just trying yeah. to make ends meet. Even you know? in the ghetto, it's hard to get out. Right. And so that's kind of the, perhaps the mission that has, that, that's told to you in the community is that we want the entire world to be this way, believe this way. Yeah. One of the phrases they use, and it also comes from the Bible, there shall be no rich or poor among us. Um, that's one of the phrases they like to use a lot. And that really spoke to me too. Nobody's rich there. Nobody's poor. Everybody just has their basic needs met. So it's easy, yeah, I could easily see where you you feel a sense of, yeah, nobleness to that, to that cause. Right. And, um, and so, okay, so you're a baptized member, you're, you have a new, a new charge for how you're going to live your life, and it feels good. So did you continue your work? Did you stay working in the garden the whole time or did they move you into other parts? Cause they have a, if you want to talk about, you know, the community, they have a lot of different ways you can work. <laughs> Plenty of different ways you can work. Right. So during that time, even in Missouri, um, I worked in the garden. I worked in construction. I worked as a, um, cafe worker cause they built a cafe while I was there. Right. And, and those Later are, on, those are called the Yellow Deli, years, is that correct? The Yellow Deli was the original okay. um, in Chattanooga. And then uh, they, they sold all of their Yellow Delis, sort of evolved into having several different types of cafes with different names. Okay. And one of those names was the Common Ground Cafe. And so the one we built in Missouri was actually a Common Ground okay. Cafe. Um, but yeah, they, then they went back to their roots. They rebuilt a, a yellow deli in Chattanooga in 2008. Mm -hmm. And it was right around that time that they decided that all of the cafes, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I, I believe this is right. I think they, they decided that all the cafes should go back to the roots and be named yellow deli again. So yes, you, you are correct in, okay. in asserting that. But at that time, 
the cafe we built was called the Comic Out uh, Cafe in Wablo, Missouri. Um, so yeah, I worked in the cafe. And then later on, after a few years there, I became a teacher um, because they homeschool all the all the children. Right. So that was also one of my jobs there. So yeah, lots of different jobs. And no, I didn't just stick in Missouri. They moved me around a lot. So while I was there, I lived in um, two different communities in Southern California. I lived at their headquarters in Hiddenite, uh, North Carolina. Yeah, that's not far from where I am. Really? Yeah, I'm in North Carolina. Nice. Yeah, it's that was my favorite place. North Carolina is just beautiful. Yeah, it's a wonderful geographic location, for sure. While I was there, they just like basically just set me free to just work in the garden all all day every day and oh, I was wow. mostly by myself. That must have been nice. It it was it was an amazing opportunity for me to, you know, like it became gardening became my passion and I was free to be really creative there. Yeah. I um it, you know, bartered with several of the local farmers. There was this old couple. They were like in their 80s. It was the I mean, it was the craziest thing. They were they had a sawmill I, wa- I remember like meeting them for the first time, walking up to them, and it's like th- they weren't in the community. These were outsiders. Sure. This old couple, and they like man and woman pushing this log through a sawmill. This is the craziest thing yeah. you've ever seen. And um, they had cedar wood chips, right? And mm-hmm. they just like gave them to us. They loved the community. And so I put these cedar wood chips in the walkways of the garden. And so you, you had like raised beds and then you had the red s- cedar wood chips and it's, it smelled amazing. It looked amazing. Yeah, sounds idyllic, really. And yeah, it, it was, I, you know, I was, I guess the point is I was kind of free to, to do my thing in Hidden Night. Yeah. And uh, a lot of good experiences there. That's great. You know, yeah, I don't want to just, I don't want to just focus on your bad experiences because I'm sure yeah, there's, there's a lot to read. There are. Like, good life there's a lot of bad i don't want to focus you know like i wanted to to tell an objective story too and totally you know the good and the bad um but that's not their way like normally they don't just like have individualism there's not a lot of autonomy yeah it just sort of happened yeah Uh, in my case i guess i got lucky living there well to a to a community like that or let's call it what it is to a to a cult autonomy is a threat to exactly yeah you know as soon as people begin to actually have space to think or feel for themselves then there's a threat that if they if they dissent from the beliefs then they're going to leave the community and if they leave the community then they're going to talk to other people about the things that happen in the community and then there's a threat to the whole community's existence right Right. Yep. And so working in something like a cafe, you know, you're, you're a public facing, you're, you're dealing with outsiders every day. And how is that? How do you reconcile, you know, seeing people living on the outside, you know, they're, they're bringing their computers, they're doing <laughs> whatever, you know, what is that interaction like when you're in the midst of your beliefs in, in the community are you still in that mindset of these are people that I can convince? Yeah. Yeah. For me, I was just trying my best. You know, I, I thought I was doing God's work and I, um, I was trying my best to represent the community in the, in the right light and dispel the myths and rumors that I knew were flying around about us. And yeah. just, you know, you just always want to be friendly and polite and uh, explain our life to people the best way that they can understand it yeah. so that they can be saved. Cause you, f- you feel like, you know, their eternal soul is on the line. Yeah. And yeah, I went, actually went to a yellow deli one time. This was, I believe it was 2020 in Boulder, Colorado. And my girlfriend at the time, she was non-religious, but she was like, Oh, these these people have really good sandwiches. I think it's a cult, but like the food is really good. <laughs> yeah. And so I was like, yeah, okay, well, I'm hungry. And I they had gluten-free bread and I have celiac disease. So I was like, well, they win. And we went in there and it's, you know, it was a very 
beautiful, beautifully built facility. There's like wood everywhere and very warm environment. Um, right. And I, I specifically remember ordering the gentleman who helped me. He was very kind, very soft-spoken. He was, he was kind of wearing some sort of like brown robe or something like that. <laughs> and, um, it was probably linen. Yeah. Something, something like that. A long, it was probably a long linen short sleeve shirt. Yes. I believe that's exactly what it was. Yeah. And I was just like, okay, interesting. And I do remember seeing some pamphlets at the, the cash register. Um, they seemed very eager, you know, for people to take those about the tribes and the farm and, you know, the, the connection between the two things. Um, I didn't really think twice about it. I just ate my sandwich and went on with my day. And now, you know, I actually just kind of uncovered the 12 tribes because I saw a friend post something about the, is it the peacemaker, the bus? Yep. Uh, yeah. So there's a peacemaker ship, uh, which is a tall ship that they took all around the world, uh, different tours and such. And then there's the Peacemaker 1 and 2 um, buses. And they're both double-decker buses that are custom-made by, uh, by the tribes. Yeah. So. so I saw a photo of it passing through Asheville, North Carolina, which is... Yep. They have a community there, too. Yeah. Big farm community. And so there's all this stir on these comments of people saying, oh, this is part of this 12 tribes cult. And I was like, interesting. So I started looking into it. And, and here we are. And then I put the two together. Oh, I've been to this, this deli. I was pretty shocked to see that it was connected and then to kind of put together, oh, th those people were really nice when I interacted with them. But I, I, I assume that's part of the teachings is when you go out into the, the world, appear, be nice, be welcoming, be non-threatening, um, be someone that people want to talk more to. Right. Yeah, that's, that's part of it. Um, I, I would assume some of them are genuinely friendly. Yeah. You know, oh, natured, yeah. I would hope so too. <laughs> Good-hearted people, but but yeah, that is a big part of it. Is uh, you know, be that light to the world, the city on a hill, so on and so forth. Sure. And you had mentioned when you first came upon the farm and all that, you'd mentioned what you were, um, I guess, taken aback by was the the lack of conflict seemed like everyone was living in general harmony. Um, and you mentioned, you know, there's all these myths and rumors going around and you wanted to dispel those in your time. I mean, you were, how long were you in the community for? Uh, seven and a half years. So, so it was from the spring of 2005 to the fall of, uh, 2012. I see. And so in, those seven and a half years, was there a point where that harmony started to not, was, were there times that that didn't exist? Uh, you know, you started to see things in a different way, like, oh, there's some conflict going on, or, you know, I'm sure it yeah. wasn't all uh, sunshine and rainbows forever right. and ever. Yeah, I, for a while I was I was quite naive and thought that the, the uh, leaders couldn't lie. You know, I, I thought they were like perfectly honest and represented God perfectly or whatever. But, uh, I was lied to quite a bit mm. personally, but then the worst thing I witnessed was they lied to the entire community in Warsaw, Missouri. And, uh, during that time there was a woman who she lived on one of the communities on the East coast and she was dying of cancer and they wanted to treat her themselves. So they did all these things, like they made a, a salve out of black cohosh, and, and they tried to apply it to her chest. She had cancer in her chest, and um, they described it very vividly. Yonike would write teachings um, that were, like, basically based on his um, his belief that she represented the whole 12 tribes mm. and in his mind it was like she was she was sick 
on the verge of death, but then she started to recover and he felt like that was representative of, you know, the sin within the tribes that's, that's being healed by God and, and that we would recover and, and once again become a vibrant nation of people. And so he made entire teachings off of this concept and it was just like, you know, fed to us. <laughs> right. And, um, and we were just constantly praying for her. Her name was Rakefet. And unbeknownst to us, she she ended up succumbing to her her illness. Mm. She ended up dying. And uh, one of the young men from the community in Missouri had been visiting the community where where Rakefet was and where she um, ultimately died. Mm. His mother was one of the ones taking care of her, so that's why he was, you know, visiting that community. So he knew, um, he knew that she was no longer alive, and he came back to the community in Warsaw, Missouri, and saw everybody still praying for her to recover. I happened to be standing next to him in the gathering when he, um, you know, at the end of the gathering, he he leaned over to one of the leaders. He said, "They don't, they don't know that she's dead." <laughs> you know, wow. I, I had, I could hear him, but like nobody else could. And and his, the leader's response to him was, "Well, we haven't figured out how to tell everybody in light of the teachings and the mm. the implications." So essentially, they um, made the decision to to hide the truth from everybody for fear that that they would stop believing in the 12 tribes, mm. you know, because it was like, she represented the tribes. And so if she's dead, that means the tribes are dead is what they, they uh, thought people would jump to that conclusion. Right. So they, I had to watch for a couple of weeks as, you know, these people were sincerely praying for her to recover, knowing that she had already died. It was just a horrible feeling. Mm. And I wanted to say something, but I felt like I couldn't because obviously they wouldn't appreciate that and I would probably be kicked out and I didn't know where I was going to go. And mm. So there was that that fear there too. Right. Cowardice, I guess you could say. Well, I, you know, I don't know if I would put that on you necessarily as cowardice, but just a sense of uh, survival. Certainly desperation, yeah. it's I've, Yeah, it was a horrible feeling and, and that that made me really question. I felt like at, at that point it, it didn't seem like it was real anymore. It just felt like it was these, you know, naturally minded men that were naturally trying to lift up this place as being spiritual. Hmm. And, uh, really it was just a, a dead religion in, in my eyes at that point, hmm. you know, because according to Yoneg's teaching, like, you know, if she dies, we die. It's basically like we, we were a dead religion at that point. Right. In my mind. And so I, I can only assume with this, this woman who was suffering with the cancer, there was no Western medical doctors involved at all. Not, not really. No. And the way they described it, it was like she had this big open wound and that they had applied this salve and that the flesh started growing back. They described it so vividly. Mm-hmm because it was supposed to represent us as a nation. And so Yonake wanted to, you know, really drive home that point. Yeah. But the way they described it, it just sounded very primitive. Uh, certainly not modern medicine. Right. From what I understand, honesty is very lauded in the community. You know, it's very... Um, expected that you're going to be forthcoming as a as a member um about yourself if you if you've done yeah, something when, you, when you're talking about yourself you got to be brutally honest when you're talking about the community as a whole you can't even have any criticism no matter how true it is you can't criticize the community right you're just not allowed to and so i imagine that must have been pretty confusing and maybe disheartening to yourself to discover that they were in fact lying to you yeah absolutely and so how do you parse together this teaching of honesty with 
pretty blatant dishonesty in regards to another human life. Well, inevitably, I didn't. I didn't try to like reconcile it in any way. I just um, took it as fa- at face value for what it was, a mm. lie. And, um, you know, eventually just determined that the whole 12 tribes is just a lie that somebody made up. So that was a sort of defining moment for you to disassociate from the beliefs of the community. Yeah, at that point, I just went into survival mode. And uh, I think there was like, I I was in and out of belief. Like I was, there were times when I like really tried to believe. Yeah. And then there was other times where I was just, you know, doing the work, going through the motions as they would say, Mm. just trying to get by, just, just doing the minimum, doing what I had to, to not get kicked out. Absolutely. Which, by the way, the minimum there is a lot. Yeah. It's not like it's not like I was doing nothing. Like, it's 16-hour workdays. You know, you're waking up super early. Mm. Uh, if you're on a farm, you're, you're going to be waking up before sunrise to milk the animals. And then, because they have goats and cows there. Um, and then you have to get cleaned up and prepared for the gatherings. And then there's breakfast and there's dishes after every meal. And then you have to actually do the, you know, the the actual work that puts food on the table. So it's like either farming or, you know, the cafe work or the construction, whatever it is, you do that for the entire day. Right. And then you have chores again, gathering again, and then dinner and then dishes. And you don't go to bed until all the dishes are done and mm. all the cleanup in the kitchen, sweeping and mopping on a daily basis. That's everyone's responsibility. So even the men that are going out to work all day long, you know, on the construction jobs, they still have to come home and do dishes and sweeping and mopping and all that. Right. And to be clear, this is all for free, so to speak. Yeah, you're not getting paid for any of that. Right. Yeah. You you get what, you know, you get righteousness and you get some food. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And was the food that you were getting from the farm, you know, was it healthy? Was it substantial? Yeah, there, there were a few times where I, um, I was malnourished and went hungry, uh, mainly in the Southern California community. There were a lot of people there mm. and I feel like they really struggled to meet everyone's needs. And, uh, I struggled to get protein um, and I ended up in the hospital many times when I lived in California and it's on the side of a mountain that doesn't help you're burning calories constantly just to walk to the, you know, to walk to the garden from the houses is downhill, but then you have to walk back up right? to, you know, for your meals or whatever. And then, um, there's a, on the other side of the houses, there's an avocado mountain, and so we would have to walk up the mountain to pick avocados and walk back down again. And it was, mm. it was very strenuous, but basically like it's not flat ground and you'd be surprised like how much energy that takes out of you. You, you wouldn't think it until you have to, in, until you have to, you know, use your feet every day. Right. Um, how, what a big difference it makes. Um <laughs> The flat ground versus being on the side of a mountain, it's its pretty strenuous. And a lot of us existing in the quote-unquote normal world yeah, under capitalism don't realize how uh, much of a luxury it is to go to the store and buy an avocado and, right. <laughs> you know, and just go back home and hang out for a while. Um, yeah, picking them is strenuous. There's these long poles that you have to like balance and hold up and um, they've got s- snippers on the end and... Um, the avocado falls into the basket and then you have to pull the, the this pole back down um, and put it in your bag and you've got like 50 pound bags some some of the men i guess myself included i'm guilty too we would like have two bags so it'd be strapped cross crossways you know across our shoulders right and we'd have two bags and we wouldn't come down the mountain until until those bags were full wow. at a certain point i was gifted a donkey that's a pretty cool story too so i like used I would um, ride him up the mountain, and uh, and then I would fill the bags. I'd have them 
like balanced on him. Mm-hmm. And so as I picked, I made sure I put avocados on both sides so that it wouldn't like just slide off one side. And so the donkey would carry the bags for me down the mountain. What a, so what a kind, a, what a kind donkey. That's yeah. That, that must have been a real relief for you too. <laughs> it was yeah. And was some animal right. companionship too. You know, it's always nice. I I mean I did get kicked a few times, but yeah, it was a, <laughs> it was a nice donkey. I liked him. That's awesome. His name was Jake. Jake the donkey. That's <clears throat> yeah. great, man. Uh, and so yeah, this work sounds incredibly strenuous and incredibly exhausting and you were a young you are a young man but you were a young man at the time uh but there were younger people doing this work is that fair to say that the children oh the children yeah yeah the children would um always be with an adult constantly and there was no playtime there's no bicycles or you know toys or any of that is that because playtime is a diversion from the devotion to your life purpose, uh, God's purpose for you, so to speak. Yes, that's exactly right. They use the word dissipation. The sin of dissipation is like when you're supposed to be doing one thing, but you do another thing. It's like your energy dissipates Mm. the energy that you're supposed to be providing to, yeah, I guess God, um, to the community. Mm. Um, So, Burning your energy doing nothing is dissipation. Mm. So children playing is referred to as dissipation. So the life of a child in the community, they get up early just like everyone else. And they might come with you to um, take care of the animals. Their Ema, their mother, helps them get ready for the gathering in the morning. Their Abba, their father, would read the Bible to them or the teachings and then they eat breakfast. After breakfast, they go to training, uh, which is school. And then after school, they would work alongside either their their abba or their ima. Mm-hmm. So either you know, out in the garden or in the kitchen or at the wood shop or the you know whatever, whatever jobs they basically they would do any jobs there mm. alongside an adult. Right, but they're not really getting help from the adult. Getting help? Right, like during the job, the, the children are, they're doing full yeah, they're, full labor. Yeah, they're seen as, as the helpers. So like, you know, bring them a hammer so they, they go get, get the hammer. And yeah, they're, 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 they're the, fully participating. The children are referred to as helpers, yeah. Okay. And if I'm correct here, Yonik referred to children as... Um, I guess incomplete in terms of their understanding of God. And I'd even heard it, this may be incorrect. Maybe you can clarify, but that children can be viewed as Satan in training. Yeah. They, they do have a negative view of, of young children. And I, I believe it to be psychologically damaging. Um, they think that children are born evil and that you have to beat the evil out of them. 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 All right, guys. That concludes part one of my interview with Sanasta. I know we kind of left off at a pretty wild point. But come on back now. You're here next week, and we will have the rest of the conversation we just ended on and so much more. You're just really not going to want to miss it. I also want to take a moment here to mention Sanasta's own book. It's called Better Than a Turkish Prison. It's available anywhere you get books, Amazon, etc. And it's obviously a deeper dive into his own story than I'm able to get for you guys in a two-hour span. So buy his book, support Sanasta. And until next week, this has been Comfort and Chaos. We'll see you in part two of our interview with Sanasta Kalucci. Peace, y'all.